Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Good morning, Monday morning time for your Mediated Conversation this morning. Over the last few weeks, you will have seen and heard reports of the incredible heat which is affecting the northern hemisphere of our one and only planet. In some places, temperatures have broken record after record. In places like Beijing and Spain and Switzerland, record high temperatures have been recorded. Meanwhile, there's been a series of record average temperatures for the world. In other words, despite the fact that we in Southern Africa have been having cooler temperatures, the average temperature for the entire globe is now going up and is probably higher than it's been for the last several thousand years. To put it another way, we are now seeing, and for the first time perhaps beginning to feel, the impact of climate change, and we can probably start to see what impact it will have on the planet and on us. First this morning... Professor Guy Midgley is a climate scientist and acting director of the School for Climate Studies at the University of Stellenbosch. Then, Dr. Roland Ngum will explain the impact of all of this on Southern Africa, project manager for climate justice at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. And finally, is there anything individuals can do in Tlantla Sabisi as a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace? We start then with Professor Guy Midgley. Professor Midgley, good morning. Morning, Stephen. Please call me Guy. Why is the world so hot? Why is the world so hot at the moment? Yeah. Well, I, firstly, I would say that uh, we started seeing the first effects of human-caused climate change several decades ago, um, but now it's really starting to bite. It's uh, it's getting really bad right now because we're starting to see the uh, heat being released from the oceans. Uh, we've added about 87% of all the additional heat due to greenhouse gas warming has been stored in the oceans. And when we enter an El Nino state, that heat returns to the surface. So the oceans, which have been acting as a buffer against global warming, now become an amplifier of global warming. And that is why we get these sudden rises and jumps in temperature and impacts like wildfires and uh, many, many effects around the, glo- around the globe. Do we know why we have a La Nina, which I presume is the opposite, and then an El Nino, which is the thing that we're about to live through right now? Do we know what causes that? Why did the sea, why were the oceans acting as a buffer and now seem to be acting as an amplifier? It's a natural cycle in the planet's circulation patterns. Uh, it existed before global warming came along, and it, it relates to uh, just a natural cycle of strengthening and weakening winds in the tropics, which is amplified by changes in sea surface temperatures. So as the winds strengthen, the easterly winds along the tropics, they drag warm water away from the west coast of uh, South and North America, and they bring up cool water from the deeper surfaces and from the north and south pole. And that, that's, it's, it's, like a, you know, it's like an air conditioner for the planet. Then when the winds weaken again, uh, that warm water rushes back into, uh, towards, the, towards the east, and we get these, these warming patterns with impacts around the globe. It's difficult to say what causes what. It is a fully interactive system. It's a natural system. But we've juiced it up by adding a massive amount of energy into the oceans. The energy equivalent to 75 trillion atomic bombs we have added since the uh, 1850s. Sure. So why then is the world 
feeling hotter now than at any time in the past? I realize it's man-made activity. What I'm trying to ask is, what is it about the specific moment, the specific last couple of years, that, if I remember correctly, I think three times this year already, we've had the highest ever global recorded average temperature. So in the last two or three years, what's changed? Is it just El Nino or is there something else? It's El Nino juiced up by global warming, uh, the additional heat in the ocean. So the El Nino pattern, which, uh, which occurs around the world, it's not just in the tropics, it, it affects the entire globe. So we, we, we now have the oceans, about 40% of the oceans are in a marine heat wave condition. Uh, and that just negates the air conditioning role of the oceans that would would be would occur under normal and La Nina conditions. So we've gone from a La Nina straight uh, fairly fast into uh, developing El Nino and all that temperature that we've been stashing away below the surface that the world has been stashing away below the surface is returning to the surface and um, in the seven years or so since we last had an El Nino we've added a massive amount of additional heat because of global warming and uh, so we see a sudden jump in ocean temperatures uh, and very worryingly we see a jump in ocean temperatures in the Atlantic that is particularly frightening because the Atlantic is much better connected to the Arctic Ocean. Uh, the Pacific's heat is, is generally cut off from the Arctic Ocean because of the very narrow Bering Straits, only 80 kilometers wide. But now, uh, with warming water in the Atlantic, it can move into the Arctic Ocean and uh, cause warming of that ocean. And uh, if, you, if you position yourself over the North Pole, think about it. That, air, that ocean, that little cold blob of ocean which w- w- with an ice block in it, is keeping cool the northern, uh, northern Russia, uh, northern Canada, uh, and all those frozen soils which store vast amounts of carbon in them. So if the Arctic Ocean warms fast, that is a very frightening prospect for us. So, you know, we're looking at the consequences of, of decades of neglect here. So if the temperature is rising so quickly now, and particularly this year, and El Nino is just starting, what's the outlook for this time next year for the planet? Very, very hot. Very hot. Uh, wildfires around the world, Canada, Australia, California, Europe. I mean, we're already seeing that. Uh, flooding in Asia, heat waves in Asia. Coral reef bleaching, very light, likely. We, we're likely to see some very adverse effects on tropical uh, corals. Um, adverse effects on fisheries uh, along the west coast of, of South America, in particular, possibly California. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going to pop out of the woodwork, uh, perhaps accelerated. Well, we don't know, but certainly a rise in the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, which is been going to be driven by global wildfires, disturbance that happened in 1998. So it's, it, it's a it's a global warming caused. A state that accelerates global warming. Not great. Ten years from now, is the world going to be hotter than it feels right now? A lot hotter from what you suggest? Uh, almost certainly, yes. Is there any way to stop this from happening or has it gone too far? Uh, we can't stop it from we can't stop it from happening because of the massive inertia in the oceans, the, um, the huge amount of heat. Only about 3% of uh, global warming is, is in the atmosphere. Uh, as I said, 87% is in the ocean. 
Another 6% uh, has melted ice and another 3% is, is absorbed by the land surface. So there's a massive inertia in the system. But the faster we start to act now, the, uh, the, less, the more we can lessen the most extreme adverse impacts. We do not want to melt the Greenland ice cap that would raise sea levels by several meters. So if, if we want to avoid that and avoid melting further land ice and, and, and ice on the Antarctic, then we have to fight very, very hard uh, to reduce emissions and um, turn, the, turn this around. But we're not going to avoid further warming. There's, there's no question that we won't avoid that. Professor Guy Mitchleep, thank you, a climate scientist and acting director of the School for Climate Studies at the University of Stellenbosch. A very stark warning emerging there. Eight, 18 minutes to nine, you're with SFM, your mediated conversation around the global heat wave, which is particularly affecting the Northern Hemisphere, continues. Roland and Gum is a project manager for climate, uh, Dr. Roland and Gum, excuse me, is project manager for climate justice at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. Dr. Ngam, good morning. Uh, morning, Stephen. Morning to all the listeners. It's quite a strange moment to be in the middle of our winter, it's pretty cold, and talking about this heat wave and, and rising average global temperatures. But I presume this is going to have a particular impact on southern Africa. Yes, uh, certainly. So uh, what Guy was explaining really is that uh, a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere is already locked in, um, obviously uh, due to our behavior as well as uh, due to uh, natural cycles. Now, uh, the El Nino uh, Southern Oscillation um, really uh, is causing all this heat around the world. And the key word here is heat. Uh, and, and heat really is experienced uh, differently. Um, in Europe and China, for example, you have uh, sharing heats, which are causing in China, for example, people to start wearing uh, face kidneys, believe it or not. Elsewhere, it is um, uh, heavier than expected rains. Um, in other parts, it's dryness and so on. And so we do not experience this uh, the same way. Um, uh, and in Southern Africa, uh, um, I believe that our summer is going to be slightly hotter um, than usual, as well as some dryness there. But um, it is to be expected, not the same effects in different parts of the world. I imagine for us, the big fear, I mean, heat is a problem, um, particularly if you're in, say, the northern Cape or parts of the Free State along the Orange River. But the other big issue for us is drought, is changing rain patterns, whether you're in the Western Cape, uh, Gauteng, um, or the north of the country. I mean, in the case of then might be slightly different, but the big problem would possibly be drought. Yes, uh, certainly. El Nino has already been uh, well analyzed and uh, experts from Vets University, from Columbia University, all around the world really are unanimous that 2023 is going to be very hot, 2024 is going to be even hotter. And if we remember the last time we had the El Nino cycle, uh, it was very dry in South Africa, broad drought, which uh, caused um, a, a huge loss of farm workers, a drop in um, crop yields, and some of the issues that led to um, some of the uh, hunger crisis that we saw during COVID. And we are going to see uh, more of the same. Uh, but at the same time as well, um, in other parts, um, there could be uh, as well uh, a very busy cyclone season. And so 
a kind of federation of different impacts um, happening in different parts of the country. And also, just very quickly as well, remember that the day zero that we had in Cape Town was during an El Nino cycle. We've seen in the past predictions that Southern Africa, I was told, would warm more quickly than the rest of the world. And yet, certainly in the extreme seasons, so I don't know, you know, the average may be different. It's countries in the Northern Hemisphere that seem to be so much hotter. Why has that happened? Well, uh, also, first reason really is the distribution of uh, the the, the water uh, and, and, and the impacts coming from the Pacific Ocean. But at the same time, uh, the southern parts of the hemisphere really are spared this, uh, but we have different effects in terms of uh, drought, uh, f- for example. And the drought effects really um, are causing uh, havoc. Uh, remember that in, in neighboring Madagascar, for example, they have had a very long period of uh, famine happening. Um, in other parts, in the, in the USA, for example, um, what we are noticing is um, heat domes um, in the western part of the continent and uh, death valley uh, with the number of uh, people um, uh, fatalities recorded Um, last year we had about 10 people dying and so uh, we shouldn't really look at the um, heating in terms of searing heat um, happening all at once. It is a kind of gradual climb and the kind of gradual climb that we are noticing in Southern Africa is much higher than elsewhere, um, although it is also happening in other parts. So it is really the degree to which uh, the temperatures are heating and not really uh, the kind of short-term effects that we see happening all at once. What kind of preparations do governments, like our government, what kind of preparations do we need to make? Well, obviously, from the uh, uh, storms that we had last year, you saw that uh, there's a very high level of unpreparedness, the loss of farm workers, uh, uh, um, and so on. Um, A number of things really need to be done. We need to have a kind of alert system. Uh, we need to start uh, equipping our farms uh, with the ability to to have shades for workers. We also need to have municipalities equipped with the ability to deal with a crisis at very short notice. Um, we have not yet completely compensated all the people who lost homes uh, in Durban and so on. And, and that really shows that the capacity to respond to crisis has not yet really been uh, up to where it needs to be. Uh, the Eastern Cape has declared many days zeros. Nobody paid attention. Uh, still now, uh, those municipalities, Salga was complaining recently, uh, all those uh, uh, municipalities and institutions need to be equipped with the resources, with early uh, alert systems um, to be uh, able to deal with uh, crisis uh, long term. I mean, there's also going to be more extreme events. So, I mean, flooding like we saw in KwaZulu-Natal. I know there have been floods like that in KZN before, but um, the point I'm trying to make is that you need to prepare for that kind of thing. Um, And I presume our government also, the question would be, what are they going to do to try and stop climate change? Yes, um, governments really... uh, 
it, in the short term, it is very difficult because uh, governments typically tend to work using electoral cycles. I have indicated in my uh, previous response that the heating that we notice in different parts of the world are increasing, are going up at incremental levels, and sometimes people do not necessarily notice it. Uh, we see only the searing heat and then maybe two months later, because that sharing aid is not there, we forget. The G20 uh, countries, for example, have failed to limit uh, CO2 rise, for example. Uh, China has increased its coal uh, power stations by almost uh, 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 200 gigawatts over the last uh, few years. Uh, and in the conference of the parties, very typically, like UNEP has said, uh, there is zero path to 1.5 degrees. And all of these means that at the political level, there is very little will to, to, to really solve this problem. And that is why we find ourselves where we are. Like Guy was saying, we have natural cycles, but human beings have exacerbated the situation. And I think that Unfortunately, uh, humanity really always wants to get to the edge of the cliff before something uh, serious is done. And unfortunately, uh, this is where I see humanity at the moment. We are waiting uh, for a serious, serious uh, situation before we do uh, what we need to do, um, South Africa included, unfortunately. Dr. Roland Ngam, thank you. Project Manager for Climate Justice at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. Your mediated conversation will continue in a moment with Antlantla Sabisi from Greenpeace. Nine minutes tonight. Mediated conversation on SAFM. Continuing your mediated conversation this morning around the global heat wave. We don't feel it here, but average temperatures have been rising this month, and particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. Antlantla Sabisi is a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace. Antlantla, good morning. Good morning, Stephen, and thanks for the invite. There's an old slogan in your movement that you should think global and act local. If the world is getting warmer, what should individuals, what should we in South Africa do about it? And I mean we as individual people. Uh, Thanks uh, once again, Stephen. Uh, I guess uh, we need to first acknowledge that... uh, uh, as the pro, uh, the good professor as well as the doctor have mentioned that the science is clearly showing us that actually this is human induced and uh, we are we are seeing how people are actually going through uh, the experience in a very uh, painful way uh, the recent uh, heat waves that we are seeing in Greece over the weekend as to how people are actually suffering so I think we need to start there by saying that we need to understand that uh, the impacts that we are seeing of the extreme weather events have a direct impact on people. But also there's the expectation that it's uh, people who should only be doing uh, something, whereas um, from the explanation that we have been listening to, we can see that there's a huge responsibility that also lies with governments. And we know that from uh, the the, uh, uh, the COP negotiations, as well as the UNFCCC negotiations, that there, there are agreements that have been made. Uh, take, for example, the Paris Agreement, where countries have committed to actually uh, take action. But unfortunately, uh, we've we've seen that there's a lack of political will from governments across the globe. And, in, and even locally, as you said, uh, Stephen, that we would like to see governments actually take action. But also, we need to, to, to acknowledge 
the source of the problem. We know that we are very much reliant on energy, and as uh, Professor Guy has actually mentioned, that we've locked in this carbon, and um, most of it is as a result of the kind of the way that we generate energy. So we need to acknowledge that we also need to hold the fossil fuel industry accountable for uh, for the impacts that we are seeing. And yes, people, to, to answer your question directly, Steve, people should continue to take action uh, I'm sure you've seen that um, campaign activists as well as, I mean, uh, your environmentalists, they have been campaigning throughout globally. And for some people, unfortunately, it always seems to be an irritation when we 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 block a road or we uh, we go into a conference hall and things like that. But imagine the flooding that we are seeing now on our streets. Mm. Uh, would you rather contend with that or contend with us? and as well as the heat waves that we are seeing across the globe. So it's really necessary that uh, that we all stand up. Um, so much of the way we live has an impact. So you fly, you drive, you eat meat. All of these things contribute to climate change. Do you really think we're going to change the way that we live? I don't know if we will. We should uh, first uh, acknowledge what is the major source uh, that we are seeing that's causing these uh, these extreme uh, weather events, uh, Steve. And what we need to to acknowledge is that yes, we've le- we've reached uh, uh, we are almost reaching a threshold where there is no going back. And uh, as uh, um, the I mean the experts have actually mentioned earlier on, we've reached a point that if we don't do something now then we will be exacerbating this further. But at least if we do something now, it definitely gives us an opportunity to reduce the impacts. We're not going to stop it because we've um, um, uh, put too much, uh, I mean, emissions into our environment. So we have to acknowledge that uh, we can do something, but we'll have to start doing it from now. Um, Then... I mean, do you expect that this is going to become a bigger political issue? Are you expecting that actually more and more people are going to be demanding action to stop climate change? We've seen this in Germany. We've seen this in other countries. We see environmental issues gaining traction in South Africa, but it's nowhere close to being a dominant political issue. And I think if you had to say to people, would you prefer us to take action against climate change or would you prefer us to take action to get you a job? I think people would take the job. They're so desperate. Yes, there are those lived experiences, uh, Stephen, that we need to take into consideration. But at the same time, we also need to acknowledge that uh, we won't have jobs on a dead planet. Uh, We are seeing how livelihoods are actually being uh, swept away by the different uh, types of events that we're experiencing, whether you're talking about India recently over the weekend, whether you're talking about Greece, or whether you're talking about California or Canada, etc. Those are livelihoods that are actually being eroded. So people need to think a little bit deeper about how do we have to create that momentum so that we get the right political will because we need governments we need um, uh, our economic system to also review and rethink how it's actually generating energy etc so in i mean on a dead planet we're definitely not going to have those jobs so yes a person right now for their immediate want they would want to take a job over uh, taking hard political decisions um, uh, 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 that take into consideration how we protect our biodiversity, how we protect human lives, etc. And one of the things that we are suggesting uh, in terms of going forward, at least some conversations are happening in some parts of the globe uh, where we are saying that we need to look at what a just transition means. How is it going to assist us to actually move away from the fossil fuel extraction uh, to generate energy that we are doing to get to a point where we can start 
using at least least carbon um, uh, technologies that are, I mean, that are actually going to give us the opportunity, uh, the opportunity to generate the energy that we need so that the economies continue to develop. We have alternatives, but we don't have the political will to implement those alternatives because we know that uh, from our experience and through different types of research that we have been doing, that, uh, for example, the fossil fuel industry is very strong in lobbying. They know how to lobby the system. They know how to lobby governments. And as a result, uh, governments um, uh, are not stepping up to actually ensure that we have those um, less carbon-intensive options. Nkelantla Sabisi, thank you. A climate and energy campaigner with Greenpeace. My thanks also to Dr. Roland Ngum, Project Manager for Climate Justice at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. And starting us off today, Professor Guy Midgley, climate scientist and acting director of the School for Climate Studies at the University of Stellenbosch. Well, obviously something to look at very, very seriously indeed when you hear what people have been saying about what is happening to the global climate.